Hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I am excited to introduce my special guest to you. He is the first atheist to agree to come on to the show and do an interview, so I'm super excited to introduce to you none other than Tom Jump, also known as T-Jump from YouTube. Tom, how are you doing today, sir? Pretty good. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the invite. No, I really appreciate uh, you coming on. As I mentioned, uh, first atheist to take me up on an interview. I'm, I know everybody's busy and stuff, but I have actually been trying to get somebody to come on to discuss kind of the other side. I do a lot of interviewing apologists, theologians, philosophers, that sort, Christian philosophers, that sort of stuff. Uh, so I'm super excited for this. Real quick for your audience, I have not taken over Tom's channel as the host. Uh, I just don't do my stuff live, and he does, and so we agreed to do it this way for uh, however that works out. But anyway, nice to meet everybody. My name's Hayden, as I said. Uh, Tom, uh, why don't you uh, give us a, a brief introduction, at least for my audience. I know, obviously, your audience is familiar with who you are, but uh, if you don't mind doing a, a brief intro for my audience. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm an atheist, by which I mean there are no reasons to believe in the existence of God, and I run a YouTube channel where I debate uh, professional expert theologians, professors, and philosophers in order to demonstrate this is the case. I wrote an epistemology and model of morality, which I'm putting into a book, and I use these as the basis of my arguments, my original arguments, to debate with these people. Um, I hope to get this book published pretty soon. I'm trying to find a publisher. I have it on my, it's like my next Patreon goal, or essentially to yeah. try and get it published. And I've been doing this for about, I think, eight months continuously. I started the, my YouTube channel about two years ago, but I just posted like one or two videos occasionally every few yeah. months. I started doing it seriously about eight months ago, and it's gone extremely well. I have a lot of a big following, a lot of really generous people who support me, and that have allowed me to do this like full time now, which is really awesome. Wow, nice. Yeah, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I've had a lot of really big names who were willing to come on and have a conversation with me, like uh, Peter Hitchens, Paul Copan, uh, Robin Collins, um, and Josh Rasmussen. Uh, Randall Rouser, all these really big philosophers and uh, cosmologists like uh, Luke Barnes and astrophysicists like Jeff Zwerink, who are willing to come on and have conversations with me about the various arguments for and against the existence of God. So I've been really lucky that that they have been kind enough to come on and have conversations with essentially a nobody. And it's a really awesome experience. Yeah, you're not nobody, not anymore at least. And uh, I kind of feel the same way. It was kind of weird for me when I first started my channel. I'm like, you know, I'm just some other guy starting a stupid channel. Uh, but I would send emails to these like bigger named uh, Christian apologists and philosophers and stuff, and they were uh, very uh, receptive to come on. I was like, wow, this is actually surprising. So you kind of feel the same way how uh, receptive people were to come on? Yeah, it's it's been really surprising when you initially start off thinking about you're going to invite like a professor on to your channel. They're, yeah. they're just going to blow you off. No one's going to no one's going to yeah. listen to you. But when you start sending emails like, yes, we'd love to come on your channel. That would be really yeah, cool. Yeah. And they're always open to have conversations. And it's, it's really, really cool that they're willing to do that. Yeah, it's an interesting time to be alive. I really like it. Uh, I think people are starting to take, uh, you know, there used to be this kind of dichotomy between academics and the professional, uh, you know, academics to be redundant, but, and the lay audience or whatever. But I think that as uh, technology has advanced and things like YouTube have come out, that there's that gap is kind of, uh, I wouldn't say it's going away. There's still a difference, but they're kind of converging together. You feel the same way? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because in academics, there are a lot of people who never got degrees, who made huge impacts in the field of especially philosophy and science, who were just completely autodidacts and taught themselves. And sure. now it seems like in the uh, like atheist community, people who aren't experts or in the field or in the scientific community can still make an impact by making YouTube videos and being oh, public yeah. speakers. And like Bill Nye is an engineer. He's got nothing to do with most scientific fields, but he's still one of the leading scientific speakers in the world right now. And so this, this social media opportunity that have been, has been granted to us 
gives lay people essentially the opportunity to make an impact academically where before they probably couldn't. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Uh, so what made you uh, start uh, debating theists and kind of getting into more of uh, like the apologetic side of it? Well, I started having conversations with my local pastors and they couldn't really answer my questions or address my concerns. It just kind of fell back into the uh, biblical rhetoric for the most part. And so I went to local professors at the local colleges around here, started going to coffee shops, inviting them to go out. Uh, some of the earliest people I talked to, I was lucky enough to have a conversation with Greg Boyd and Paul Eddies, who wrote okay. the Jesus Legend. And mm -hmm. I got a signed copy of their book. That was really cool. And talking with those guys, I realized that I can really uh, grapple with the professionals in the fields of these topics and have a really interesting conversation. And so I decided to start like posting them online to see... Like I've been confident enough to post them online and to get feedback. Yeah. And then I had my like first serious conversations with like Blake Junta, the philosopher and uh, Dr. David Clark, who's a big, big uh, professor, a big apologist professor. And they, those went exceptionally well. And so I just started to keep going with it and it's grown bigger and bigger since then. Cool. So, but it, it initially just started with like a kind of a sense of wonder or a, a want for truth. And so you're just kind of seeking answers. Is that what you'd say? Yeah, I, after I lost my faith, I started really researching hard into the philosophy when I found like Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, those kind of guys. Watching sure. those videos really inspired me and I got interested in it and thought they were just the greatest thing in the world until I started to meet the philosophers and then realized that the philosophy behind these guys wasn't that great. Until <laughs> I started to meet some better arguments and then I wanted no. to challenge those arguments like, well, how do I find out if these are actually really good or not? And so I brought them to the experts on the other side of the fence, because I think the best way to really learn, as expressed by John Stuart Mill, is that if you only know your own side of the issue, you know little of that. So yeah. you should always have your ideas challenged in a debate kind of a format from people who have really studied the other side to be able to point out the weaknesses that you don't see in your own. And yeah. that's how that led me to those conversations with the big theists around here in Minnesota, like Greg Boyd. Mm -hmm. So you've had on, I mean, just numerous of people that you disagree with. I mean, at like the most fundamental level, like at the at the metaphysical level, we we have a we, you and I have a fundamental disagreement. And everybody that pretty much that you've had on your show, you got a fundamental disagreement. But as far as I can tell, like your um, would you say your overall experience has been uh, very uh, positive or cordial? Yeah, absolutely. I think that with a few exceptions when I'm sick, there's been two debates where I was just sick and I was just very cranky. But other than those, they've all been really good conversations. I think that even though we disagree on most things, I think we can agree on certain things like the difference between our imagination and our experience and the laws of logic and math and those kinds of things. And if we start with those common grounds, we can build on that to try and understand the differences between our position without just saying, oh, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree. We can actually discuss yeah. why we have these different positions and the justifications behind them. And when we go down that intellectual route, it seems like everyone's really cordial. I mean, even people who you are expected to not be cordial, like Ken, yeah. Ken Ham or uh, Kent Hovind. Have I've you had, had Ken Ham on? Not yet. I'm trying oh, okay. to get him. But <laughs> I've had a lot of, I've had several debates with Kent Hovind and they've always yeah. been extremely cordial. I mean, he, we've never gotten into an argument or a fight at all. And most people think he's like one of the most dishonest people in the world. Like Aaron Ra claims that about him all the time, but he's yeah. not. You just have to learn how to communicate in a honest way without trying to insult each other and sure. starting with those same basic groundworks of like the laws of logic and the difference between our imagination and our experience. 
Sure. Well, I, I'll be honest. That's what I like most about you. And I just want to commend you to not only your own audience, they already know, but my audience as Thank well, you. that even before we came on, uh, even yesterday, Tom was sending me a message on Facebook. Like we're using, I don't even know what this program is right now to chat. And he was like, well, on Monday, I'll, I'll, we'll call each other and not post it live and I'll help you kind of uh, navigate and get used to it. And so that's just kind of the guy he is. And so I appreciate that about the way you do your dialogue. And it's it's a model that I want to do as well. So you're inspiring me. So uh, I think everybody should aspire to do that because especially right now, uh, uh, you live here in the States as well. Like the, the political dialogue in this country, we're definitely not going down that route, yeah. but the political dialogue in this country is just uh, abominable. But there's atheists and Christians coming together on not only your channel, but other channels who disagree, I would say, at an even more at an even more fundamental uh, uh, place. And they're being very cordial. It's just it's a, it's it's a, it's nice to see. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that especially in the political realm, it's just all personal attacks and nobody's really discussing the issues. And it's a real tragedy. Yeah, for sure. Well, okay. We kind of went off on a little tangent there, but that was cool. Uh, what? Uh, let's talk about uh, kind of your background. You mentioned that you walked away from your faith. Uh, how did you come to faith in the first place, I guess, would be my first question. Well, I was born into a Christian family, raised Christian, um, always went to churches, went to a Catholic, I think a Catholic schools, both grade school and high school. Um, so I was raised Catholic or Christian my entire life. And the reason I left was sometime in high school. I was, I had a rather dark, depressing past and I was always praying like morning and night, trying to find a way out of that. And none of my prayers were ever answered. And so eventually I stopped being able to believe over time. And so that's what led me away from faith, even though I was kind of born into it. Yeah. Uh, you said you were born into a Catholic, went to Catholic school. So would you say that you, uh, you and uh, your family, I guess, if you don't mind me asking, were did you, were you pretty serious Christian? Like, uh, or would you? Because I know, like, uh, most Christians are pretty. Uh, I say most Christians. That's my, that might be too strong, but a lot of Christians are just, you know, they would check the box if you handed them a piece of paper that said, "What is your religion?" But or they might go on Sunday, but the other six days of the week they don't really care. So how would you have described uh, your? Level of sincerity, I suppose. Yeah, my mom is extremely devout. She reads the Bible every day, read it cover to cover like dozens of times. She's extremely devout in that respect. And many of the schools I went to were also extremely devout. I don't really know, because for me, it was always a challenge since none of my prayers were ever answered. I was probably pretty devout in my childhood because I couldn't really not believe. But the longer I really considered it and the longer my prayers were to answer, I eventually lost more and more of my faith. So I think my family overall was pretty serious, especially on my mom's side. Yeah. Uh, my dad's side, not as much, but my mom was really more the church religion person of the family. Yeah, the moms are always more devout, man. Uh, when did you know, you said, was it in high school that you you knew that you no longer believed or accepted that you no longer believed? Yeah, it wasn't really like a single either event that I could just say, well, here's the date where I stopped being a uh, Christian. Mm-hmm. It was more just, it kind of fizzled out. Like after praying and praying and praying and nothing happening, I eventually just stopped praying and stopped caring and stopped expecting anything to be there. It's like praying to a, a gallon of milk and nothing happening eventually you just realize it's just a gallon of milk. It's not going to do anything. <laughs> and that's kind of like how it was for me. Sure. Um, I wouldn't say I identified as an atheist at that point because I had, didn't really know what atheism was yet. Yeah. Um, it took a few years after I stopped believing and actually got introduced to Hitchens and Harris and Dawkins that I really started to understand the, what an atheist was and the definition and the philosophy behind it. And that's when I started to identify as an atheist. Yeah. 
Well, uh, since it wasn't like an argument that talked you out of uh, faith, do you think that an argument even in, and I don't know what you would agree to, that's what I'm asking, but do you think that an argument even in principle could talk you back into faith? Well, sure, because I have, uh, I value evidence more than anything else. And so it sure. doesn't really matter what it is that you're proposing. If you can provide evidence for it, that's good enough for me. Like if you said uh, there is a magical leprechaun who has a pot of gold, and then you demonstrated this by showing me it's over there, and I went and saw the pot of gold, I'm going to believe in the magic leprechaun, even if I don't like the magic, the idea of magic yeah. and supernatural. <laughs> so God would kind of be the same thing. If you could make novel, testable predictions for the existence of a God, then I would be re willing to believe in it because it made testable predictions. Sure. But it wouldn't, so it would in that case be arguments and evidence, probably not yeah. arguments as much as like actual like scientific evidence, that would convince me to go back to the faith. Okay, so I think what I think the distinction you're making, and correct me if I'm wrong, is less about you know maybe a philosophical argument, but maybe more about uh, something you can actually experience. Right. I don't think a philosophical argument would ever convince me because of especially specifically because of my epistemology, uh, knowledge is broken up into three categories. You have conceptual, empirical, and metaphysical. Conceptual is like logic and math and stuff in our heads, and okay. arguments are of that kind. They're just of stuff in our heads, ways that we can articulate and describe reality. But you can't use an argument in order to indicate something existing. Like you, I couldn't argue unicorns exist and get you to believe unicorns exist. You'd actually need some kind of empirical evidence before it was reasonable to believe unicorns actually existed. And no mm -hmm. argument could do that. And the same thing would apply to a god. If you want to claim that a god exists, is a real thing that isn't just imaginary, you're going to need more than just arguments for the same reason. Okay. When you say empirical, do you really mean uh, something that you can sense or something material? Um, not necessarily. Okay. Uh, I was just saying because it, the, the examples you were giving kind of seemed like that, and then God would kind of fall outside of that category just kind of by his nature, and so you, you would just never, you just in principle could not have that kind of evidence. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Well, no, not necessarily. So, for example, if you wanted to say there was a supernatural thing, uh, this, the way you would indicate the supernatural thing would be the same way you'd indicate a natural thing. You just use novel testable predictions. You'd say, okay, I believe I there is mean. a supernatural being who will grant or who will answer my prayer to make a gold brick appear in front of me. I pray to this being, a gold brick appears in front of me. That would be evidence of the supernatural being. Sure. So I wouldn't reject the possibility of the supernatural. You want to see because, prediction. Right, right. So okay. that's how I would differentiate between things in our imagination and things that exist. And that yeah. applies not only to the natural, but also to the supernatural. Sure, sure. So if you prayed to specifically the Christian God um, for something pretty specific and then it happened, would, would you think you would believe or do you think you'd say maybe it was a coincidence? Well, it depends. It would have to be like a repeatable, testable kind of a prediction. So it's yeah. like um, – Can you give an example? Well, the gold brick example. Like if every time I prayed to a God, I got a gold brick, that's good evidence. That would be that would be good. That would, <laughs> hey, that'd, that would be nice. that'd be nice. That'd be nice. Right. right. <laughs> I so think that's... you'd have a genie, not a God. <laughs> right, right. But that was just that would be just one example of the kind of testable predictions okay. that would convince me. Um, there could be other things. Like we could go back in time and see Jesus rose from the dead. Like if Jesus actually yeah. predicted he was going to rise from the dead and then did it, that's fantastic evidence. That's 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 great. I would believe that. Um, there are certain things that I wouldn't believe, like that I, the Omni properties, even if we discovered that Jesus rose from the dead and that uh, yeah. there is a God who granted our, our prayers and made testable predictions, that wouldn't indicate that the God was all powerful because that's a different kind of a claim that would require a, a new kind of evidence that I don't think we have yet. But all the other things I definitely are grantable if we get the right kind of evidence. 
Okay. We may come back to the Omni property thing. That's the thing that tends to come up in your discussions. I do want to address that, but uh, let's go to, okay. We talked about that. How, how do you define atheism? You were hinted at it earlier, but how would you actually define it? Cause I know there's, uh, uh, or I think there's a difference uh, amongst atheists as to how they would define it. Right. So I would define atheism as the positive position that there are no reasons to believe in the existence of God. It's something close to the new atheist definition of a lack of belief that there, okay. that the Christian God does not meet his burden of proof kind of a definition. I do not use the philosophical definition, which is the position that there are no gods. Okay. That I don't, because from my worldview, I think we should look at things epistemically. Mm. We should try and find the justification for it. And that's more important than whether or not it actually exists, the ontology behind it. It's so, actually, it's more important? Right. I think it's more important. I think that okay. you need to have the justification to believe something before you actually claim to believe something. And so if, we, if okay. justification isn't there, whether or not you believe it exists just doesn't really interest me. It's all about the justification for me. It's all about the justification. But the justification is the means by which we would come to the conclusion that the thing actually exists, correct? Right. Okay, so it's not unimportant. You just say you just think the method or the uh, epistemological justification is more interesting. Well, I think the it's a lot more important of how you come to that conclusion than whether or not you believe it exists. Like if someone told me they believe the tooth fairy existed, like I don't care. Like okay, that's nice, great for you. What I'm yeah. interested in is why do you believe that? Can you give me evidence? Can you give me some? Sure. Kind of yeah, argument? me too. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I, I think the epistemic thing is more important than whether or not they actually believe it exists. That's not as yeah. important. Okay. Okay. I don't know. Has anyone? Okay. So the most uh, common objection that I get on my blog posts, on my YouTube channel, on anything. Uh, is not from skeptics, is not from atheists at all. It's actually from Christians. And I don't know if atheists realize this or not, but there is a subset of Christians that absolutely does not want me to give evidence and reason for God. <laughs> like, they super hate it that I do it. And I have to debate them more than I have to debate atheists, and, which is bizarre to me. Uh, but they would actually uh, um, take the same, they would give the same definition that you just gave, which is there, there are no reasons to believe. You just have blind faith. Have you wrestled? Have you thought of that? Yeah, they're called fideists. So yeah, that's, uh, exactly. The position that there is no way to know of God, you just believe it. And I'm totally fine with that. That is, from my perspective, an internally consistent position. If you want to just believe God exists and you grant that there's no arguments, I can't, I can't disagree with that. I, I have nothing to counter that argument with because that's a perfectly consistent position. So, because yeah. I, the only problem I have is that when I see the evidence and arguments presented to indicate the existence of God they seem to all objectively fail. Like I can like demonstrate analytically why they do not work. And so if someone's claiming this argument indicates the existence of God, I see a contradiction there. Like it clearly doesn't. It's like saying um, the square root of a pork chop indicates the existence of leprechauns. Like, no, it does not. There's a problem there. But if you just say you believe in leprechauns, like I'm okay with that. I, I, I can't counter that. That's totally can't fine. Counter that. But you also say that your epistemology uh, a priori excludes the possibility of making an argument for God, correct? Um, what do you mean? Like you said, from you said I earlier, I asked you if a philosophical argument for the existence of God would ever convince you, and you said no because my epistemology would kind of rule that possibility out. Or, well, did, or did I hear you wrong? No, that's correct. But fideism isn't an argument for the existence of God. It's just saying we believe God exists. Well, you can say that. I'm totally okay with that. That's not a just. No, yeah, I know. Yeah, no, I know. I wasn't referring to fideism at that point. I was referring uh, um, back to you saying that you would want to, um, you would have to give an argument. Oh, right. Uh, so specifically, I'd be like evidence um, rather than an argument in that case. Okay. Okay. 
what is it? Okay, but given the philosophical arguments that you've heard, I recognize you don't find them uh, to succeed or you don't uh, think that they're um, you know, good enough to warrant belief. But w what would you say the best uh, argument you've heard is? Right, so I would say the best argument would be the contingency argument. I think that of all the arguments, that one actually indicates what it's espousing for, which is some necessary thing. There has to be a necessary thing that grounds the existence of everything else. I totally grant that. It makes perfect sense. It's perfectly reasonable. I'd say it's valid and sound, uh, wow, as opposed to the other arguments, which I think are completely unsound. There's just They indicate nothing as far. They're just completely unnecessary. You can get rid of all the other properties, but the necessary one is actually necessary. That is a really good argument. But it doesn't indicate what the necessary thing is. It could be a god. It could be uh, pantheism or uh, deism, polytheism, pastafarianism, uh, transtheism, omnism. There's a whole bunch of possibilities. But I do grant that that argument does indicate something, So, which could be a god. And so that argument is the best one that theists have. It at least points us in the direction of some kind of necessary something. Yeah. Well, this is interesting. So you grant that there's a necessary being. Do you grant that there's a necessary being that is the ground of all existence? A necessary something. I, the being in philosophy, the word being just means existence. So a right. necessary being would be fine. But normally, when people hear the word being, they think of a conscious agent, like a being, a personal being. So I grant. Yeah, I just that mean is, something that exists. Yeah. Right. So I grant there has to be a necessary thing that exists to ground everything. I grant mm -hmm. that. But that could mean a lot of different things. It doesn't necessarily mean something outside of space and time. It could be an infinite regress that is the necessary set of things. When that that is a possible necessary thing in itself. And it could be something that's eternal. It could be something that has different kinds of time. It could be something we don't even imagine. So it, we don't know exactly what the qualities of that necessary thing are, but there does have to be some necessary thing that is makes this, that makes the statement, there, uh, there was at some point a philosophical nothing false. That statement has to be false. Right, yeah. Um, let's see, what was I going to ask? Is there, a, is there anything that you would rule out that could not even in principle be the, the necessary being? Uh, anything that isn't necessary. I, again, I don't know exactly what that would mean. It's kind of circular. So okay. I, I don't really know what kind of limits we can place on what necessary means, Yeah. but it's going to be, have to be something pretty cool, pretty interesting, probably beyond our comprehension. Yeah. So I would say probably like pineapples are not it. Maybe right. it could be, but I'm going to well, guess material. Well, what about a material thing? Could a material thing even in principle be a necessary being? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we don't know the extent of all material things. We only know the qualities of the known material things. So you could say it can't be any of the known material things, which I'm willing to grant, but you can't say it isn't a material thing because the unknown material can have properties of uh, that we have no idea about. We, there could be lots of material properties out there we haven't discovered yet. Because so you of, think that could there be an uncomposed material thing? I have no idea what that even means. It's possible. Well, I mean, I think I'm pretty sure that uh, uh, philosophers and apologists who make the contingency argument would say that because a material thing is composed, therefore it could be decomposed or fail to exist, and therefore it, it cannot even in principle be a necessary thing. Well, that's only true of the known material things. There could definitely be mm -hmm. um, like a, a singular thing, which is just pure existence, kind of like the, the Thomistic well, argument. Like the just, Thomistic argument. Right. So it could be a material thing that has that similar property where it isn't a composition of other things there could be a base material thing okay well it can't be from the Thomistic because he would say that even if if this matter this matter this material thing would have a, a form or on the uh, Thomistic philosophy at least and therefore it couldn't be the necessary existence because thomas aquinas would say that the uh this is uh 
this plays into what you talk about when you talk about the uh, Omni properties, that for Aquinas, the Omni properties necessarily follow from the uh, necessarily existing thing. Um, I guess we can go to the Omni property thing if you want to tell me how you feel about Omni properties and, and, and um, explain your thoughts on that. Right. So just to pick up on that a little bit, um, even material things can be formless. For example, there are certain theories in physics that promote the idea of things existing outside of space and time. For example, Sean Carroll's emergent space time and Nima Arkani Hamad's amplituhedron and the multiple kinds of time like uh, two time physics by Itzel Bars and the end of time by Julian Barber and imaginary time by Stephen Hawking. So material things aren't limited to the brackets we place around them. Those are only the known material properties. Like when we say it has some kind of a form or it's some kind of a composite, all of that stuff just describes the known material things. What the unknown material has is just unknown. It could be essentially anything. We have no idea. And so we can't place limits on what the material, the unknown material could be like or what it could do. And so it's equally as reasonable to say that the unknown material could be uh, formless, timeless, spaceless, eternal base of everything as it would be to say that a God could do so or a supernatural thing could do so. I think at, I think at that point, the response would just be that's kind of redefining what matter is. It things like at that point, that's just not matter. A formless, well, like, spaceless, timeless thing is that's just... If you call that material, I think you're just kind of calling it material. I don't think it would actually be material anymore. Well, that's the that's the confusion that most theists have is that they think that the scientific definition is somehow binding to reality, which it's not. The Our scientific definition of matter is just our tentative provisional explanation of what we can experience so far, and it goes nowhere beyond that. So if okay. we were talking about what goes outside of that to the unknown natural, we can't place limitations on that. All of the stuff that we describe as matter only applies to the known kind, and that's it, full stop. And that applies to everything in science. It's only yeah. about the known stuff. And yep. what, what goes beyond that, we have no idea. Okie doke. Uh, what are – got to switch gears, sorry. got some more questions I want to get to for the audience. What are some uh, common misconceptions that you think that uh, Christians have about atheists? Um. Well, I mean, I know from the Pew Poll studies that atheists are the most distrusted group in America. I think that's uh, – <laughs> Probably the big yeah. one. Um, Why do you think that is, is? Why do you think that is? I think that people have this intuitive belief that if you have a moral system that is objective, that it makes you more moral intrinsically, and that because atheists reject the idea of some objective moral system, that they're more socialist or relativistic, and that their values are kind of wishy-washy and could change at any minute. And I think that's something that people feel intuitively, especially given the past... Uh, history of atheism in the Soviet Union and Mao and Pol Pot and those kinds of leaders who sure. uh, were attributed to atheism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a pretty big misconception. Um, okay, but you you think that uh, there is a ground for objective morality, uh, even on an atheistic worldview, correct? Right, I do. I am like most philosophers. Most philosophers are atheists. I think it's 74% or something from the sure. uh, Phil Surveys paper. But and 50-something percent believe in moral realism. So 50% mm -hmm. believe in objective morality, even though most are atheists. Yeah. So most what? atheists believe in objective morality. You don't need a God for that. There's lots of sure. different ways to argue for that. So whenever I say objective, I mean, and I think most people mean, there must be a standard that exists between you and me that are independent of you and me f by which we can judge uh, moral uh, judgments. Like, you should not do that. Well, you shouldn't because here's the standard 
by which we adjudicate to say that you shouldn't do that. What, right, what, a mind what, a mind independent standard, right? Or sure. So, so do you agree with that? And if so, what is the mind independent standard? Yes, I do agree with that. So I think that we can have mind independent standards of even abstract concepts, like a triangle. If you add up all the angles of a triangle, it will add up to 180. That's just objectively the case. It's mind independent. You don't get an opinion on it. It's just something that's <laughs> a fact. So yeah. I think the same kind of principle can apply to morality, and we can look for commonalities given like philosophical problems like the trolley problem and the fat guy problem and the, the guy walking into a hospital to save five lives problem. And if we look at all of those philosophical problems of morality, we can find certain kinds of similarities and use those similarities to build a model that'll lead us in the direction of what we can call objective morality or the objective standard. And I call that the best of all possible worlds. Okay. What about, so I've always, to be honest, and I don't know if the Christian audience is going to like this or not, but I've never, it may be true, I don't know, but I've never found the moral argument convincing, honestly. Oh, really? I've, all, I've always, yeah, what, yeah. I, it was really surprising whenever I hear William Lane Craig say this is the best one or the most convincing one. He's, I've heard him say before, and I mean, as a wannabe Christian apologist guy on YouTube, I have the utmost respect for William Lane Craig, obviously, and he's in a, a league I'll probably never be in, and so I'm probably wrong. But uh, he's, he says when he goes on college campuses and stuff that this is like the, the best argument that he gives, which surprised him. He thought the Kalam would be. Um, but I feel like I don't know... I'm less convinced that premise one is true the more and more I, I go on. And it's not because I know that atheists can be moral. I'm not confusing the epistemology with the metaphysics here. I pretty sure, I think you could ground morality uh, kind of like Aristotle does. Um, platonic objects. I'm sorry? Like in platonic objects, kind of a platonic morality. Uh, I, I don't, Aristotle wouldn't, I don't think agree with a platonic realm of forms and, and things and abstract objects, but he would say it's just grounded in human nature. And it's, it is the nature of a human being to tend toward uh, human flourishing. And, and as far as, uh, well, why would you, who says we ought to tend towards human flourishing? You, you don't have a choice. You just do. It's just a fact of nature. That's what happens. And there's good ways and there's bad ways of tending toward uh, uh, human flourishing and the good ways we call morally good and the bad ways we call morally bad. That doesn't seem to me to require a God. Uh, I would argue that the best explanation of human nature is God, but that would be a cosmological argument like something Thomas Aquinas would give. Uh, but anyway, as far as I can tell, like, a, and, and actually Thomist philosophers, this I go to a, a uh, a school i'm studying philosophy and uh, ma in philosophy and, and it's a thomist uh, school and uh, pretty much everybody there agrees as well that they don't really like the moral argument that well either uh yeah. so have you what, what do you think about aristotle's uh, uh moral philosophy like that well i think the main objection to aristotle's is that if uh, morality is a result of evolution it's still contingent or subjective on sure. our brain processes which would make it like subject to something like the Plantinga's evolutionary argument against naturalism why would we think mm -hmm. this is true as opposed to just a social construction or something like that so but I, t I totally agree with you that the first premise of the moral argument is really really weak because it's actually it's a claim that is extremely um, st it's a strong claim it's saying that the only way to get objective moral values and duties is through a god and the way to debunk that is just present a different way to get objective moral values and duties, and you've defeated the argument. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do that by just saying, well, morality could just be an undiscovered law of nature. Mm -hmm. That does it. There's a, there is an, a mind, opinion-independent basis of objective morality that is not a god and can be just as objective. 
And since I can present this alternative, the first premise kind of falls flat because it just claims God is the only way to do it. Yeah. So because it, it's making such a strong claim on such weak evidence, it is pretty easy to deconstruct the moral argument in mm-hmm. that way. Well, and I also have a selfish uh, reason for not wanting the moral argument to succeed, and that is because if atheists start accepting it, uh, they're going to start acting like moral relativists, and I don't want to live in a world like that. So (laughs) if we can all have moral uh, uh, realism, I'll be perfectly happy with that. I will stick to cosmological arguments, (laughs) but uh, I don't think anybody's going to do that anytime soon. But um, are there any other uh, common misconceptions that you can think of that atheists have, I mean, excuse me, that Christians or just religious people in general have of atheists? Um, well, I'm not really sure of atheists in particular, but I definitely know that they have several misconceptions about atheism in general. Like, yeah, sure, example, that's fine. Yeah. They, they say that, for example, God is the only way to account for morality or God is the only way to account for logic. And atheists can't account for logic or morality or the uniformity of nature or uh, – intelligibility, they think that the atheist worldview is, or in science in general, is just unable to account for these things. And that is the biggest misconception that theists have from my perspective, is that, yes, atheists and science can account for all of these things. Um, We can account for them as biological results of evolution, like you said about evolution, or we could say that we could make up new things like undiscovered laws of nature and just create equally as plausible explanations as a god but they're just from a secular perspective. So scientists and atheists can explain all of these things just like theists can. They just usually prefer to withhold judgment and not make those leaps beyond what the evidence can support. And Mm -hmm. again, that's the biggest misconception I think theists have is that they think, oh no, science and atheists, they just logically can't explain this. It's just impossible for them to do it. And that's just not the case. Yeah. Well, just coming back to it and, and, and whenever I was telling you, I wasn't sure about the moral argument and you said, well, I think the number one response has to do with evolution. That's almost kind of my point, though, whenever I say I think atheists can have this, is because um, whenever you start saying, well, consider um, planting as evolutionary argument, or and a lot of times whenever Dr. Craig will make his moral argument, he doesn't – whenever he gets to the part where he says you know, atheists can't have this, it's not because of a lack of God. It's really because of evolution or because of determinism or something like that. It's not per se – it doesn't per se have to do with the lack of there being a God. It really has to do with evolution or determinism, which there are theological determinists and there are theological uh, theistic evolutionists, however you want to call them. So, I mean, he may say, well, yeah, they're equally wrong. But my point is it's not God per se that is the factor here. It's really those other things. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I just think there's a lot of theists who believe that is not the case. They think that. Oh, yeah, no, really I know. Is, yeah. the God. And I don't know that it is. I'm just, you know, making observations here. Right. Uh, right. Trying to trying to be as you know objective as possible here. I don't really care if the moral argument succeeds or not. I've got a million other ones. I think I have a million other ones. Uh, so the most common misconception I get is that you guys are a bunch of Satanists. <laughs> well, well, I mean, Satanism is an atheist movement, actually, which is pretty funny. Yeah. They give out right. cards at the at my atheist group at my college, uh, there's actually a couple of the my friends there who actually have Satanist cards because you can buy them. It's pretty is this funny. just like a trolling type of thing? Like, yes. Uh, let's, yeah, okay. yes. The Satanist is just like the Spaghetti Monster movement. It's just a completely trolling of Christianity, and that's it. Yeah, you're trolling all of the baby boomer generation people there. Going, They're Satanists! Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I got you. Okay. Uh, so have you ever had a seemingly seemingly religious experience or maybe you know, something that you're like, whoa, don't know how to explain that. 
Uh, no, I haven't. I think if I had, especially when I was praying as much as I would, I think I'd probably still be a Christian. And so I'm, I haven't, as far as I can tell, remember any case that I thought of something miraculous that could be explained by God or would be explained by God. I think I was just in so much emotional pain that if I had experienced something like that to relieve me from the pain, I probably would still be a Christian. Yeah. Well, I mean, just personally, I hate that, and I'm sorry for all the pain and stuff that you've gone through. I, I've never been through a, a battle of depression or anything like that, so I certainly don't um, understand what that's like. But, uh, yeah, anyway, um, I feel really sorry that you had to do that or you had to go through that. And, that, um, you know, I get I don't have all the answers as to why God would or would not. And, like, from my perspective, God does exist, and for whatever reason, he clearly did not, um, you know, answer the prayers in the way at least that you wanted. But, um so I appreciate the uh, appreciate your concern. Yeah, well, I mean, just sincerity. I mean, that is probably um, that. Actually, I won't say that the divine hiddenness is. I don't think that's a very good argument. But the argument uh, from evil, or however you want to say that, the problem of evil is probably. Would uh, would you agree that that's probably this? That's not really. I don't know if you consider that evil, but you you get what I mean. Uh, would you think that that's probably the strongest argument against God, actually? Right, the problem of suffering. Uh, I think it's the second best argument. I think there's a better one, which is my specific version of the problem of suffering called the problem okay. of involuntary suffering. I had this conversation with um, Dr. Chris Gadson and Rick Madsen. Uh, it's essentially my original argument that they haven't heard before, and it stumps Christians pretty well. It's a pretty strong argument that says... Okay, let's hear it. All right, so... Um, if God forced a person to be in this world without their consent, that's an immoral action. And it would have been morally superior if he had given them the option to choose to be in this world with all the suffering and whatever benefits God has in this world, or to choose to go to a different world of their choosing. Because God did not do that, then he must, not, must necessarily not be a morally perfect being, because a morally perfect being would have chosen the more moral option, which would be to give each individual the option to be in this world or a different world. And the same thing applies to hell. If the morally superior option is to give someone the choice to go to heaven or hell or some third option of going to their own universe. And forcing them to choose between heaven or hell without their consent is effectively slavery, and a morally perfect being couldn't do that. Okay. I think for the Christian theology, like within the th Christian theistic worldview would be, excuse me, that God did not force human beings to exist in the world that it is right now. Um you were a Christian once. I'm sure you're familiar with the opening chapters of Genesis. That um, that world that Adam and Eve were brought into, of course, you're correct in that they didn't have a choice and that they existed. But at least the Christian response would be that world was uh, pretty dang good and they didn't have anything to complain about. All right, but I'm making a stronger argument. I'm saying each individual, like including everyone born today, should be given the option to be in this world or be in the other world. The fact that Adam and Eve, even if they chose to be in this world, you can't impose that choice on everyone else also, because then it would be immoral to force all of those other people to be here without their consent. So it applies to every individual. If God forced a single individual into this world without giving them the option to go to a different world, that itself would be an immorality, and the perfect being couldn't do that. Okay. I mean, if, if he just left us to our own devices, first of all, God is God. I mean, he can kind of do whatever he wants with his creation. But if he, if he left us to, his, to our own devices and that, um, you know, there was no escape from this world because there is suffering and there is horrible things going on. Nobody denies that. Uh, I mean, I might feel the same way. If I came to the conclusion that God existed and, uh, he, you know, 
we were just kind of left to the suffering. That's all there was. I might come to the same kind of apathetic uh, response. where like, well, you know, screw you. I don't care. Well, why would I worship you? Um, but uh, I think the Christian theological biblical response would be God is not distant from distant from this. He uh, took on human flesh, as you know, or as you know, the story goes at least. Uh, and, uh, you know, Jesus became incarnate and not only became a human, but suffered himself. And we would say suffered the worst suffering that any human could possibly bear and uh, took all that upon himself. And so that there is this uh, third al or there is this third alternative. It's not between here and hell. Um, there's also eternity with God, which is which would be a reality that is whatever you think, you know, whatever universe you might think you want to exist in. God, I think the response would be. God as an omniscient being, which you don't grant the omni properties, would know even better and know that heaven or the new heaven and earth that he's going to create is even better than that universe. Well, I that can make sense? It even better. I can even grant most of that. Well, the first thing is okay, cool. Yeah, Jesus, sure. Jesus did not suffer the worst thing humans could suffer. There's far worse uh, forms of suffering than crucifixion. The Japanese forms of torture were a lot worse. But... Okay, yeah. So I mean taking on uh, this sort of you know, maybe I don't necessarily mean his physical suffering, but the fact that he bore our sins was just something I can't really express, like, because uh, it's not like a necessarily a physical thing, though there obviously is that physical element of it, but maybe it's emotional, psychological. I don't know how to explain that, to be honest. But the idea that he was bearing our sins on the cross would be, I think, something incomprehensible, incomprehensibly painful. Uh, so I mean, that may be the case, but my my main point would be that. For example, I didn't choose to be here. If given the option, sure. I would choose to go to my own universe. In a well, heartbeat. I'm glad you're in this universe, first of all. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank I mean, you. I'm enjoying this. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying my suffering. <laughs> you're, you're not suffering. <laughs> so I, mean, I, I would choose to go to my own universe in a heartbeat. And the fact that I'm forced to be here without my consent and I didn't agree to be here, I think is a immorality that if a God existed, that he would be culpable for. So he couldn't be a perfectly moral being because he has imposed an immorality on me by forcing me to be here without my consent. And it yeah. wouldn't just apply to me. It would apply to every person, all the atheists, all of the non-Christians, everyone who was forced to be in this world of suffering without their consent would have been suffered an injustice because they weren't given the option to choose otherwise. Sure. Okay. Well, switching gears here, I got some more questions I want to get to. Um, uh, tell me about uh, your epistemology or this philosophy uh, that you uh, have constructed. You say it's in a book form. Tell me about it. All right. So um, my morality, my model of objective morality, as we described it, essentially is described as the best of all possible worlds, which we've been sure. talking about. My epistemology can be broken down into essentially uh, the principle that conceptual claims require conceptual evidence, empirical claims require empirical evidence, and metaphysical claims require metaphysical evidence. That's essentially the summary of my epistemology. It essentially just says the logic and math and arguments and all of those kinds of things that come up in our head are like languages. They're formal languages as stated in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And so no combination of those things is going to qualify as evidence of something existing in the world. In order to show something exists in the world, you need some kind of further criteria to differentiate between the imaginary and what's real. And that's where science comes in. And science uses testable future predictions to do that. And so we have the testable future predictions kind of evidence can demonstrate things exist in the world physically, like uh, horses and dogs and people and those kinds of things, because we have that physical kind of evidence. But arguments, no kind of argument is going to get us there. You can't say there's this new species of animal and here's an argument for it. That won't ever be good enough. Uh, the same thing applies to the historicity of miracles 
and magic mythical creatures, all those kinds of things. Testimony for those things is never going to be good enough because it's a kind of conceptual evidence. You would need some kind of physical evidence to justify miracles and magic and mythical creatures, the paranormal, supernatural, UFOs, all of those kinds of things because they're empirical kinds of claims about something in the world as opposed to the conceptual evidence of someone's testimony. Do you, do you agree that empirical facts or empirical evidence can be placed into a philosophical argument? Sure, absolutely. Oh, okay, okay, cool. So this would not actually rule out ipso facto that an argument for God could be convincing. For example, the Kalam cosmological argument would take uh, what it perceives could be false, like the premise may be false, but it's a valid argument in that the uh, scientific claim that the universe began to exist, like that would be something that could be tested empirically, uh, at least in theory. And then it's placed into a philosophical argument for the existence of God. All right, absolutely. For example, I could say that anything that has fur is a mammal, dogs have fur, therefore dogs are mammals. Because that, that includes two empirical pieces of evidence, one that uh, mammals have fur and two that dogs have fur, those empirical pieces of evidence in combination with the argument, the, the conceptual mm -hmm. argument, is what makes it a strong argument. So if you have both, that's perfectly fine. You can have the conceptual right. testimony and the empirical evidence. Like, for example, if I said I yeah. saw a dog, that would yeah. be reasonable to believe because we have no. my testimony of the dog in addition to all of the empirical examples of dogs. Sure. But if so, I said I saw a unicorn, that would not be good enough. Correct. Yeah, you only I agree. have the conceptual and not the empirical. Sure. I agree with that, of course. My, my, the point I was making, and it may not be a point at all, I'm just looking for clarification, was that there's not uh, necessarily this infinite chasm between the different types uh, I don't know if you call them knowledge or not, like the logical, the uh, empirical, and the metaphysical. Like, I just put all three there in an argument. Oh, well, yes, but they're still different things. For example, you can't yeah, use they're different. pure yeah, conceptual sure. knowledge to ever get to an empirical conclusion. For example, you can't use just the laws of logic to get to apples exist. There's no combination of the laws of logic that's ever going to indicate the existence of an apple. There's no kind yeah. of philosophical well, the, uh, law argument that you can present to indicate the existence of apples until you have the addition of the empirical evidence. So you okay. can have, you can combine them. That's totally fine. But if you're just having one kind, like just conceptual evidence, like logic and math and abstract laws, that'll never get you to any kind of empirical evidence. Okay. You so would you empirical in addition? Okay. So would you rule out uh, a priori arguments for the existence of God then? Um, probably. Yeah. So like a, like an ontological argument. Yes, definitely. Okay. okay. Just, I think I got your epistemology square there. I think I understand it. That's what I was trying to do. Uh, wh where does this naturalistic pantheism, how does this come into this? What do you define it? Right. So in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy on pantheism, it gives a definition of naturalistic pantheism, which is a that natural forces are adequate to explain everything in existence, and it grants nothing beyond the ontological commitments of science or something like that. Yeah. Um, the way I like to phrase it is a little bit differently. I like to simplify it down and take the properties of a God, which are all powerful, all knowing, all loving, personal, eternal, conscious, and just take three of those properties, which is just like necessary, eternal, all powerful, and then say these two, these two or three properties are just all there is. And there's a natural thing that has these properties. So it's just a natural, eternal, all powerful or necessary something. And so I just, just phrase it like that. It's essentially the same thing as the complicated definition from the SCP, but it's an easier, more intuitive way to understand what it, what it is. So it's just an eternal, all-powerful, or necessary nature without mm. the consciousness. So you're, okay, so you're not just taking the concept of God and shaving away a couple of things and calling it naturalistic pantheism? 
No, I'm deliberately trying to use the properties of God as an analogy in order to make it make sense to theists, as opposed to just trying to use the scientific definition. But they are both independently coherent. So it's not contingent on God or God's properties. I'm just using them as a way to explain it. Okay. Uh, well, before we go, uh, what are let's let's get off the heavy subjects. What are some things that you like to do for fun? Um, I like to bouldering, rock climbing, swing dancing, nightclubs and bars, rollerblading. Yeah. I do. I bike 20 miles a day. I jog a 5K every day. Dang, uh, you jog a 5K every day? Yeah, after after biking 20 miles a day. My goodness, up there in, in Minnesota, eh? Yeah. Oh, only in oh, summer. Right. I don't do this. In only winter, in summer. I, in winter, I just give yeah, up. Cool. In winter, I'm just okay. like, nope, it's time to hibernate. This white I, stuff on the ground is disgusting. Like, oh. I'm in North Texas, so I, I think I told you yesterday when we were talking, I went on a bachelor party trip up to Minnesota to go ice fishing. Uh, whose idea that is of a bachelor party, I don't know, but that's my friend wanted to do, so we went up there. And I did not know that they put these – have you gone ice fishing? Yeah, the, the houses you're talking about, the mobile Yeah, that's insane to me. So I live right next to Lake Texoma, which is never frozen. So I, I just doesn't even compute with me that you would put a house on a lake, frozen lake. Uh, yeah, you, you can see people driving their cars onto a lake, and it's people from Texas like, what? Water yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, no. And, I, and you hear that ice crack, and it just <sighs> echoes down the lake, and you're like, we're all going to die. But, yeah, that was a crazy experience. It's way too cold up there for me. No way I could live in Minnesota. Yeah, but anyway, I, I really appreciate uh, you allowing me to come on live and you uh, coming on to uh, my podcast. And so uh, this was a lot of fun. But hopefully, we can do it again another time. Uh, you got some debates coming up, you said, or something like that, or you just had your first uh, in-person uh, live debate. Is that correct? Yeah, I just had my first live debate with Stephen Worthy in Neewa, Wisconsin, at his church. Yeah, and I have a few debates coming up. Um, I hope to get something set up with Ozzy. Ozzy. Uh, I forgot how to pronounce the name. He's a philosopher on uh, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Ozzy Ramazani is something like that. I don't know how to pronounce sure. it. Um, I also have something set up with Tyler Vela for October. He's a presuppositionalist. Uh, I have another interview oh, on the 6th with uh, someone who I've talked with before, Stellman, I believe. And I have a few, I think I have four more this month, one every, one every week. And yeah. it's three at least set up for next month. So, Definitely uh, got, got more. You got a lot going on. Yeah. 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 Things, I'm things booked for like a month and a half. In yeah. Things are going well for you, man. I'm glad to see that. Glad everything's, uh, you know, going good over there at the channel and taking off. He says you're going full time now. Yeah. Oh, actually, one more thing. I got a conversation sure, with yeah. Matt Slick I did. And it's oh, going to yeah. be published in November because that's when the Gospel Truth guy who hosted it said he wanted to publish it. But that one, I, I'm really looking forward to that one. That was a good conversation. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I hope everything continues to go good uh, for you, Tom. I appreciate uh, you taking time out of your day to do this. And uh, I'll see you next time, man. Yeah, absolutely. I hope things go well for you, too. And I hope you get on some big apologies. You can, maybe you can have us debate uh, some on your channel sometime. That'd be really cool. Yeah, that might be fun, for sure. Awesome. Well, talk to you later. Yeah, see you later, bro.